The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at TBC. I get to work with our high school students most of the time, but I get to work with you guys today. So welcome to TBC. How many of you all are appreciative of that cold front that rolled in? It feels like fall, doesn't it? It's awesome. I love it. It's football weather. All right, so go ahead and turn your uh, Bibles to John chapter 13. We'll be in, starting verse 36 in a moment. We have been in the Gospel of John for 28 weeks now. Today's part 28, and we're in the middle of what's known as the upper room discourse, or the farewell discourse. And Jesus is hours away from his death, and he is with the disciples minus Judas. And these are his last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And before we step into the passage, though, I want to take a step back. I always like to take a step back and look at the context, the bigger picture of the text where we jump into the specifics of what we're going to look at today. So I want you to see the big picture. What is Jesus doing in this upper room discourse, John 13 to 17? He's getting them ready to live in the world in his absence. And if you want to look at a text that really does a great job laying out for us how you and I are supposed to live in the world today, you can look no further than the words of Jesus in John chapter 13 to 17 as he lays that out for his disciples. There's a lot of things. There's so many. You could do an, a, a, a year-long series just on the Upper Room Discourse by itself. So this helps us answer the question, how does God want us to live in the world today? So if you like simple, I have a really simple outline for you today. Here it is. Jesus is saying, I'm going away, you're going to stay, and I will send you the Holy Spirit. Now I tried to make that last bit rhyme, but it didn't really work out too well. Um, But Gary's going to really get into the Holy Spirit next week, but this is the... uh, the main message that I think he's trying to communicate in this text. So look with me at John chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So remember what happened right before this passage. If you look back a few verses, after Judas leaves, Jesus then says, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. What was he talking about? He was talking about his death. He was talking about his coming death. Then he gives the famous command, love one another just as I have loved you. And so Jesus lays out all these things for the disciples, and Peter misses all of it. And he focuses in on just that one statement, that where I am going, you cannot come. It's like my kids. Whenever I'll say several things to them, and they'll, they won't like something, and they'll focus on that one thing. And this is what Peter does. He focuses on this one statement, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, this statement should not be a surprise because Jesus said something very similar in chapter 7 and also in chapter 8. 
But Peter responds. He says, where are you going? And Jesus clarifies a little by saying, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And Peter blurts out, why not? I'll lay my life down for you. Now, at this point in the story, we we feel like we know Peter pretty well, right? And this just sounds like something he would say. We, We know Peter to be the one that is the big mouth. He's the one who is always sticking his foot in his mouth. Um, always the first to speak. And so we've come to expect this kind of boldness and brashness from Peter. And then Jesus puts him in his place and makes the famous prediction that Peter would deny him three times before morning. So I want to remind you, though, that when you look at this text, we, we, we have come to expect this kind of boldness and brashness from Peter. But we have to remember the disciples at this stage of their life, they're still fairly immature in their faith. Whenever you look at the, the, the popular Jesus films out there, they always show the disciples having these long gray beards. But they were most likely in their late teens, early 20s. They didn't have long beards. They probably had peach fuzz, like many of my high school guys. I tell them to shave that junk. That's a whole different sermon altogether. But these guys, they're, they're young in their faith. They're not mature in their faith yet. And so we imagine Peter. We always picture Peter. We think of the one who wrote First and Second Peter. We think of the one who would be crucified in Rome upside down because he requested that he not, he said he's not worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. So crucify me upside down. We think of that, Peter. We think of someone who's got this, this amazing strength in his faith. We have to remember, he's still pretty young in his faith. He's still young in his faith. Do you know how much time passed between this moment and Peter's eventual death? About 30 years. He had a lot of growing to do. I work primarily with students and people young in their faith. They often make great predictions and proclamations about what they want to do for the kingdom. D.A. Carson summarizes it well. He says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. At this point, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. Peter overestimates the strength of his faith. And I think we all do this to an extent, especially in our youth. We overestimate the strength of our faith. And so Peter's statement, Peter's statement when he blurts out, I will give my life for you, that statement would not stand up over the next several hours. But it would stand up over the next 30 years. Just understand What's important in your, a walk with Christ is the long game. Christ wasn't finished with him yet. If, if you're someone who's a young believer and you're sitting here and you're having um, hiccups and startups and snags and you're making mistakes and you're falling on your face, you should take comfort knowing that one of the greatest disciples who ever lived did some of the same things and made some horrible mistakes early in his faith. 
But his statement would not stand up the next few hours, but it would over the next 30 years. Because he had not received the Holy Spirit yet. Understand that you cannot grow yourself. You cannot sanctify yourself apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit hadn't come yet into to indwell these disciples. They needed the Spirit to come and live through them. I think you should, we should take great comfort in this. We should take great comfort knowing that Jesus picked a traitor. Tim talked about that a few weeks ago. A traitor, a doubter, and now a denier. Peter has no ability to follow through on his commitment with his own strength. He says he will give his life for Jesus, but it's not until Jesus gives his life for Peter, then sends the Holy Spirit, that Peter's able to give his life for the gospel. We take great comfort, I think, in that truth. Look at John chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So why would their hearts be troubled? Let's recap all that Jesus has said. He's told them he's going away. He's about to die. One of them is a traitor. One of them is, will deny him. Satan's at work against them, and they're all going to fall away. So yeah, they're a little worried at this point. But I want you to see how practical the Scriptures can be. How many of you struggle with fear and anxiety? Raise your hand. Raise it high. This is a more honest service than last service. So people that struggle with that, I guess, like to sleep in an extra hour. We can make that connection. So I'm not bashing. I'm just saying. So how many of you all would say you feel like no one struggles with it like you do? Raise your hand. How many of you are afraid to raise your hand just now, right? So I think if we're honest, we all struggle with fear and anxiety pretty immensely. And if you look at the texts through the Gospels especially, you see these themes of fear and faith. They run through all the words of the Gospels. And I'll tell you, I'll admit to you that, that fear has been a lifelong struggle for me since I was a little kid, afraid of certain things, some stupid things. And yet, um, even the call to ministry was a fearful thing for me. The call to preach was a fearful thing for me. There are times where I look, I'm like, how did I end up in this job? This is crazy, how the, 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 the irony of what God can do sometimes with someone. And yet you see in the Gospels this theme of fear and anxiety and faith. I think fear, I would bet there's many people in this room who the fear and anxiety is debilitating and paralyzing for you. And I think when you look in this story, we, we see, I would say fear and anxiety are a little bit different. Fear usually has an object. If there's a lion in the room, you're going to be fearful. Anxiety can be different. Anxiety can be kind of vague and abstract and just kind of a black cloud hanging over you. You're not sure what the source of it is. But for these disciples, their fear has an object. He has said some troubling things, and they're fearful. But when Jesus says, do not be afraid, he almost always follows it with a faith command. 
You, you, you see, we don't, we don't just fight fear by trying harder not to be fearful. We fight fear with faith. We fight it with faith. And it's not just faith in faith. And it's not just faith in a plan. It is faith in a person. Don't, don't miss this very simple but profound thing in the, in the passage. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. I don't want you to miss how profoundly personal faith needs to be. We get to put our faith in a God who is a person, the persons of the Trinity. And we don't just trust a plan. We can trust the plan of God because we can trust the person of God. We put our faith and trust in a person. So don't miss the personal nature of faith. God wants us to trust him. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, believe in God. You believe in God? That's great. Believe also in me and put your faith and trust in me. And make the connection here. He says that just after he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. The antidote to fear is always faith, and it's faith in a person, the person of God. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. There are many misconceptions about this passage. Some translations use the word mansion instead of rooms. So, spoiler alert, you're getting a room, not a mansion. All right? So, room is a better translation. I grew up hearing things like, well, if God created everything in six days and he spends all this time on heaven, how great is my mansion going to be? I heard those kinds of things growing up. That's the wrong focus. That's the wrong focus. The focus should be the person that we get to live with. The person of God that we get to live with. The focus should be we get to live with the Father. We get to dwell with the God of the universe. And we want to talk about place. In that day when a Jewish son got married they would build an addition, additional room, onto the side of the father's house. And yes, that sounds awkward. And the older generation is like, I wish we still did that. The younger generation is like, thank God we don't, right? But they would add a room onto the father's house in that day. And the family would just grow and grow and grow. And this is the picture, I think, that he's trying to paint here, is we get to dwell in the father's house. We get to live with the Father. But the big idea, we get to be present with God. When you and I think of heaven, most of us value place over person. We ask questions like, what's heaven going to be like? What are the amenities? What's it going to be like in heaven? And we put place over person. And I want you to think about that in relation to how we live our lives here on this earth. Because we don't even do that 
in our relationships here. I'll give you an example. So I'm a high school pastor, and for the last 15 years here at TBC, here's what I've noticed. Whenever I plan an event, the event is secondary. They want to know what? They want to know who is going to be there. And if their friends aren't going, they're not going. Because they value person over place. Many of you, same thing. You value, here on earth, you value person over place. You know, um, a few weeks ago, we got back from our New York City mission trip. We took, we took about 23 people to New York City for a mission trip. We do it every year. And uh, one thing I really appreciate about this group of students was that they just, they really valued being together. And so many nights after late hours were just, were, were just so tired from the trip, we would spend a couple of hours every night just being downstairs in the basement of this place we're staying. And guess what? The accommodations of where we're staying, they weren't all that great. But it was the, the people over the place. We just had fun together. We enjoyed fellowship with each other. And so you think about that, how we live our lives in the here and now. How much greater will that be when there is perfect fellowship with a perfect father and perfect fellowship with other followers of Jesus? And see, moments like this on earth are just a foretaste of what's to come. If you think back on the most joyous moments in your life, they are more about relationship than anything else. There's a lot of lonely, rich people. So why would heaven be about place and not about person? You even see this in verse 3. He says, I will come again and take you to myself. So what's the emphasis? He wants us present with him. It's presence over place. He wants to be with his disciples. He wants to be with his family. If you imagine all the trappings of heaven without the presence of God, it wouldn't be heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the presence and the person of God. And I know you're looking at the passage and you might say to yourself, but I've always understood this. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, and so Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, plus he was a carpenter, you know. But understand, when he says, I go and prepare a place for you, the preparing is not about the wood and nails of carpentry. You see where this is going? It's about the wood and nails of a cross. The preparing was the cross and the resurrection. This is how he's going to prepare a place for them. And here he is just hours from going to that cross. And Jesus is the one who's comforting them. Just let this sink in for a minute. We have five chapters devoted I think it's five, yeah. In this upper room discourse. And Jesus is bringing comfort to his disciples on the eve of his own crucifixion. 
He brings comfort to his disciples. And at first, it looks like he's changed the subject. In verse 1, he says, don't fear. Now let's talk about heaven. And it sounds like a change. That's not what he's doing here. Because their fear is that he's leaving. Their fear is that he'll no longer be present with them. So how does he bring comfort to them? He says, I will one day be present with you again. I will bring you to myself. So the greatest antidote for fear that we have is that one day we're going to be fully present. We'll be present fully in the perfect presence of God. We'll be fully in his presence. And I don't want you to miss this. Because there are people all over this room that you've, you've never really known a home. Maybe there's been no father or no mother. You've never known a home. In your youth, young adulthood, even now, you've not known a true home. So I don't want you to miss this. You'll one day be fully home with the Father. And all your desires, and all your desires for a home are fully realized in Him. That, that's where this is heading. That's where it's going. And you, you and I can take great comfort in that. Look at verse 5. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Thomas raises this perfectly logical question, right? He says, you say you're going somewhere. You tell us we know the way. How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? That's a fair question. We live in a GPS world today. Everyone knows you can't know the way unless you know the final destination. And so Thomas is stumped. He's stumped. But do you see what Jesus is doing here? If you go back and look at the Greek, the word know is present tense, not future. And so how do they know the way? They know the way because they know Jesus. The way is not just some path. It's the person. It is Jesus himself. He is the way. This is one of the most quoted statements Jesus ever made. And it's often used whenever people say, if someone says or tries to argue there are many pathways to God or there are many roads that all lead to God or if they're they're making some religious pluralistic statement, this passage is plopped down as a um, proof text for why that can't be true. And I will tell you, this passage does apply to those situations. I want you to see the context first. Look at the context here. 
Because who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to 11 disciples, 11 Jewish disciples. They were not religious pluralists. They did not think there were many roads to God. They did not think there were many gods. They, were, they believed in one God. So when Jesus says this statement to these 11 disciples, what might they see as the way to the Father? They would see the way to the Father as obedience through the law. So when Jesus says, I am the way, he is showing himself to be the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets pointed to. He's the fulfillment of the law. And so if they're going to be with the Father, they have to go through Jesus. So in this sense, he is the way. Now, when Jesus says this statement, can we apply it to other world religions? We absolutely can. I mentioned our New York mission trip a while back. And we take our students to usually either a, a, a mosque or a Buddhist temple or a Sikh temple or even a Hindu temple. Just one visit, usually every year. Part of that is for us, the people we work with there, for them to be reaching out beyond where they're at and try to build a relationship with these other faiths to try to reach them for the gospel. And so we go and visit the Sikh temple the last couple of years. And we get to sit with some of their gurus and ask questions about their faith and share a little bit about our own faith as well. And one thing my students always walk out with, during our debrief time, they always say things to me like, I'm just so blown away at how unapologetic they are and how works-based their philosophy is. Because they'll just tell you, this is what we do. We do this, and we do this, we avoid these things, and they don't use the word salvation, but it's their formula for salvation, or achieving some status, or achieving some place with God or the gods. And so how does this text apply? Because all other religions are works-based. And so in that sense, Jesus is the way. He's the only way to the Father. It, it, it is an exclusive claim, but understand the initial context that is being said here Jesus is now bringing comfort to his, these 11 disciples, but getting them ready to face all kinds of temptations. Leon Morris says it well. He says, I am the way, said one who would shortly hang impotent on a cross. I am the truth. When the lives of evil people were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph, I am the life when within a matter of hours his corpse would be placed in a tomb. Everything about to happen would make his words seem empty. And so he says this on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, they're going to be tempted towards all kinds of lies. The cross will look like the greatest defeat. Don't believe it. All kinds of lies will be spoken about me. Don't believe them. It will seem like I'm dead. Don't believe it for a second. So this is Jesus preparing his disciples for what they're about to face in the world in which they live. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Philip does something that all of us, I think, are tempted to do, and that is give us proof. Give us more proof. We have to be careful. I think we often say, when looking at the disciples and the Pharisees in the Gospels, we often say things like, can you believe these guys? They just don't get it. And yet, we'd be doing the exact same thing. We can't be holier than thou. So Philip does what you and I often do, which is, can you just give us a little more proof? A little more evidence, which, as I've said before, it shows that man has a heart problem, not just an information problem. They have all the information they need. And yet it's, give us a little bit more. Give us a little more proof that you are who you say you are. And you can hear the sadness in the words of Jesus, the exasperation. How can you say that? Haven't I told you that I and the Father are one? And in this last statement, where he says, believe on account of the works themselves. Miracles served a twofold purpose. Miracles weren't just divine tricks for Jesus to show that he was truly God. They did show his power, and there was a confirmation element to his miracles, but they also were signposts to point beyond themselves. Jesus wasn't just showing up to show power. If that was the case, he could have done like a magic show, hocus-pocus, illusion tricks, to say, look, I'm God. But the point of his miracles was not to be just a divine trick, but the significance went much beyond that. So if you think about his miracles, he would heal blind men, which would point to giving sight spiritually. He would multiply the loaves to say that he's the bread of life. He'd raise Lazarus because he is the life. So you see, the miracles did not just, they weren't just divine tricks. They were, to, they were meant to be symbolic and to point to a deeper spiritual reality. And this is what he means when he says, believe on account of the works themselves, what they point to, which is me, and that I'm God. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, so we need to talk about these last few verses here. In verse 12, greater works than Jesus did? What is he talking about? It's, it's kind of hard to top a resurrection. How do we top that? This does not mean that the disciples are going to perform greater miracles, but it does refer to their reach. Their ministry will go worldwide. Jesus never once left Palestine. In Acts, Peter preaches to 3,000 people, 
or, or 3,000 people get saved when he preaches to a large crowd. That never happened to Jesus. Never happened to Jesus. They're going to reach beyond the Jewish community to the Gentiles. They're going to have a ministry that goes further geographically than what the ministry of Jesus went. This is why we're sitting thousands of miles away from where this all took place on a Sunday morning talking about Jesus because this was fulfilled. There was a greater reach because of their ministry, the disciples. And then verses 13 and 14. Some people think this is like, if I just tack on the, in the name of Jesus, God will give me whatever I want I'm asking for, like a genie in the bottle, like a magical incantation. This is not what this is referring to. To pray, to pray in his name means to ask for things that give him glory. It means to ask for things that align with his character and his personhood and his plan. That's what it means to pray in his name. And so we pray for things like the lost. We pray for things like our city. We pray for things like our own growth with God. We pray for the body of Christ, his church. We pray for things that align with his character and who he is as a person. I want to take a step back and just remind you that the big picture, once again, this whole passage is about the presence of Jesus. They're worried. These disciples are worried because he'll no longer be present with them. He says he goes to prepare a place where they will be present with him again. And he provides a way to his presence through the cross and the resurrection. Then if you go on in the upper room discourse, he will challenge them how to be present in the world in the way that he's been. I don't think we value the presence of God like we should. We, we don't see just the sheer beauty of it, being in the presence of God. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, addresses this in a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. And he says the reason why Jesus had such impact on people was because he combines traits and virtues that we would never expect to be combined in one person. These are, there are traits and virtues where if you have one, it generally drives out the others. That doesn't happen in Jesus. These traits and virtues are held together in perfect harmony, perfect balance, because he's divine and human. And so this is a paraphrase, not a quote of his sermon, but a paraphrase. He says, in Jesus Christ, we see high majesty, yet deep humility. Strong sense of justice, yet infinite mercy. Tenderness, yet with no weakness. Boldness, without any harshness. Humility, without any uncertainty. Unbending conviction, yet totally approachable. Insisting on truth, yet bathed in love. Power, without insensitivity. Integrity, without rigidity. Passion, without prejudice. He's divine and human. He's a lion and a lamb. This is the sheer beauty and excellency of Christ. This is who we get to be present with for eternity. This is who wants us 
in his presence, the one who will bring us to himself. And he doesn't just want us to know things about him. He wants us to know him. He wants to be known by us. If you're here this morning and you're, you're on the fence about all this stuff, you're, you wouldn't call yourself a believer yet. I want to be perfectly clear with you that the God of the universe wants to know you and wants you in his presence. And my prayer is that you would surrender your life to him this morning that you would see the excellency of who Jesus is and you'd submit to it, you'd surrender to it and want to follow him with your life.